0: Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony Podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of the Finding Harmony Podcast. I am thrilled you're here this week. We have. One of my very dear old friends joining us. Some of you have probably met her before in person. Some of you may have practiced with her. Many of you probably know who she is. She's been teaching Ashtanga Yoga in the US, in the Florida area, for several years. Uh, Her name is Krista Shirley. But before we jump into this interview with Krista Shirley, I just want to remind you that there are two days left of the Ancient Breathing Challenge. So even if you have not signed up yet, you can still sign up and join the live class today or catch the replays from the last four days. You could join the live class tomorrow on Monday, September 12th, our last day, or catch the replay of all five days. Um, It's going incredibly, it's an amazing challenge. People are having great results, great breakthroughs, uh, reduced stress, sleeping better, uh, less anxiety. They're connecting to these ancient breathing practices uh, from the Hatha Pratapika and um, just transforming their experience in life. In only five days, it's been just amazing to hear what's been going on for everybody inside the group. And Some exciting news, I am opening the doors of my Ancient Breathing 2.0 course today. Today is the first day that you can sign up and join me. Classes start next week, September 18th. All the classes are recorded. This is a great way to deepen your connection to the breath to really explore the Hatha Pratipika, to learn pranayama or breathwork as I was taught from my teacher, Sri Opitwari, who is one of the last living gurus, true gurus on this planet, a real master of yoga and energy and pranayama. And pranayama really is the uh, science of expanding extending our life force, our life energy, um, as well as our breath. And so this is a great course for not just beginners, but yes, if you're new to breath work, it's an excellent course for you, but also more intermediate and advanced practitioners. We're covering all of the breathing exercises um, that I've learned from Sriopitwari that are also found in the Hatha Pratapika, as well as a few extra ones uh, dealing with chakras and energy, as well as looking at the therapeutic uses of these breathing exercises, and also we're going to examine what practice is best for you given your constitution, your Ayurvedic constitution, whether you have more air, vata, or more fire, pitta, or more water, earth, energy, kapha, what practices would work best for you um, to help balance and keep you in a state of balance so that you can really enhance your focus on the spiritual energy and growing that spiritual energy within yourself. So there's so much incredible philosophy in this course. Um, six modules taught over seven weeks, as well as two bonus modules. And also with this group, if you're signing up for the first time, you're a new Uh, student to Ancient Breathing 2.0, you're also getting a very special bonus. I've never offered this before, but I'm doing it just for you, just for this group, a six-month membership to my inner circle, which means you can practice my source style yoga with me every Friday Uh, You also get to attend regular monthly uh, breathing and chanting classes as well as our philosophy study group and conference where you get all of your questions answered should they come up. And you get to join our WhatsApp group as well. So um, this is a great opportunity for you to just dive in to really seeing how a regular practice of pranayama or breath work can transform not only your personal experience, it will change the way you look, it will change your weight, it will change your connection to the bandhas and the lightness, the quality of your yoga practice. Um, I can't even tell you all of the amazing ways that having a regular breathing practice conscious breathing breathing practice um time set aside for focusing only on the breath and the movement of subtle energy has transformed my personal practice of yoga and my life so this is just an opportunity for you should you feel pulled to come and join me inside ancient breathing 2.0 i would love to have you i would love to connect with you you also get to connect with me um in a group chat where you can ask your questions at any point uh, and get one-on-one guidance. So it's a very rare opportunity to have uh, that kind of connection and teaching uh, and building of relationship with a teacher. So um, it's there it's on the table. It's open today, Ancient Breathing 2.0. We start next Sunday, so there's only one week to sign up. Doors close September 18th, which is one week from now, and I won't be offering it again until possibly next year. So uh, don't wait. Get into Ancient Breathing 2.0, or at the very least, jump into the free challenge. We're still going. We have two more days, and you can just enjoy the benefits of practicing breathwork in this beautiful group of humans and catching up on the replays and just enjoying um, those teachings. So those are some opportunities I wanted to tell you about before we start to explore with Krista her own... um, connection to meditation and the breath and how it saved her life when she couldn't do the physical practice of Ashtanga Yoga for many months and even a few years. So this is a really, really personal, beautiful story. Um, you're going to find out all kinds of things that you probably didn't know about Krista. She has really been through a lot in the last several years And uh, what she's learned and how she's been able to rehabilitate her shoulder and her arm and her body and her practice is absolutely a miracle. And it's uh, just something to be celebrated. So I'm so happy to share this episode and this conversation with you and just celebrate yoga, the healing benefits of yoga, but even Maybe more importantly, the healing benefits of the breath, the healing benefits of visualization and uh, energy and meditation and being able to connect to that subtle energy force within yourself. So um, let's get going. There's a lot here to cover. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm here with Russell Cade.
1: Good morning, everybody.
0: And we are joined today with a very lovely, beautiful human being who has been a friend of mine for a very long time.
1: I knew her first. I don't think no, you I didn't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that is the lovely Krista Shirley. How are you, yeah. my dear? <laughs> I am
2: so good. And thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. I'm really honored.
0: Uh, it's been something that I've been thinking about for so long. Me too. and. I don't know the timing just came about, so it was great
1: <laughs> so uh Krista, well, we should probably introduce Krista are yeah you are uh, you're teaching you're teaching yoga in in Orlando still
3: you' yes.
2: center
1: I, r- I- run a morning Meister program, but I closed my studio last april okay, okay, okay yeah. Where are you a,
0: teaching out of?
1: Do we have a paragraph or anything about Krista? We normally I have didn't a, par- write
0: a paragraph. Now.
2: <laughs> do
1: you, let me look online to see if I can find a paragraph. I'm gonna about find you. a
0: bio for you. God <laughs> but where are you teaching now in Orlando?
2: So I actually I'm teaching classes in Winter Park, which is close to Orlando, and it's mm-hmm. out of a birthing center, but I oh, used the cool. space in the mornings for my MISOR program. Nice. During COVID, everything you know, the studio suffered and I had all these medical situations I had seven surgeries in a year between twenty nineteen and twenty twenty. Oh, and geez. So after COVID, there wasn't anything really left to rebuild. And yeah. so I stepped back for a couple of months and really just kind of focused on my rehab. And then when I was ready, actually in July of this year, I literally just started the morning program again. Yeah, but I do that and teach privates and I'm back doing workshops again. And Good. hopefully we'll do some retreats next year. So I'm yeah, and you're back teaching.
0: Good. And you're looking so good. So oh, healthy. You. And I think the last time we saw you in person was actually in 2019 at yes. your studio. Yes. And that was right at the beginning of your health journey. I yes, mean, ma'am. your health crisis. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so originally from South Carolina, Krista Shirley <laughs> resides in Florida with her son, Caden. Uh, she is a level two authorized restaurant yoga teacher, founder of the Yoga Shala in Orlando, Florida, where she, where she teaches traditional Shtanga yoga classes in the Mysore method, though, as, as she just said, on, online.
0: Let's uh, let's talk about, uh, do you want to talk about your health crisis, your health journey, sure. what that was like? Let's let's work backwards today. We oh. can <laughs> talk about
1: anything
2: that you want. I really am. Um, you can ask me absolutely any but, questions. But
1: can we just stay like linear backwards?
2: We'll do our best. Because, <laughs>
1: I don't like these circular, these circular interviews that go bounce around.
0: We'll try and we'll try and work backwards linearly.
1: So what did, what, what were your parents thinking when they had you?
0: No, we're going backwards. <laughs> we're starting with the most recent tragic event oh. that, that apparently has turned out quite well.
1: Her because... birth was not a tragic event, Harmony. <laughs> Good Lord. By the way, concept.
2: Russell, I was an accident. Just in case you're oh, wondering. Oh man.
0: Oh, see, it was. It was a oh, surprise. Man.
1: Well, I was a Coke baby. So let's let's also both, tragic. Also tragedy. Yes.
0: <laughs> but tell tell us, tell everyone what's been going on. Cause I was like so much must have changed in like your life, your practice, your point of view, like everything.
2: Yeah, I'll try to I'll try to make a brief synopsis. Um so 2017, Hurricane Irma hits Orlando and it knocked out my studio and my house was in a big disarray. So the day after the hurricane, I was in my yard for 10 hours. It was not smart. Don't ever do that. But I was by myself moving trees and down fencing. And at the end of it, I had torn my common extensor tendon and my supraspinatus in my left shoulder.
1: Holy smokes. Just working in the yard? I was in the yard for 10 hours
2: pulling bags and trees and fencing and I damaged my arm really badly. Oh. Um so after that, I didn't, I didn't do anything. I mean, I did PT, I did prolotherapy, I did PRP, I did acupuncture, I did everything you can imagine, 2017 through 2018. But the shoulder continued to really, really, really be a problem. And in 2018, in October, my nephew passed away. And during my oh. my nephew's funeral, my mom, um, God bless her soul, she passed away this year. Uh, she had had a stem stroke in January of 2017, so she was very disabled and. She couldn't stand up or walk or do anything. And I was trying to get her out of the car to get her in her wheelchair. And that's when my shoulder really like something ripped really loud.
3: And after that,
2: after that, it was obvious that I needed to do something. So I actually did more PRP treatments. And then fast forward to April of 2019, I finally had surgery. That surgery went wrong, um, ended up giving me a very nasty infection, and I traveled around the country to see different doctors to see what was wrong and what to do. And all of them basically said, you clearly have an infection, but we have to go back in to find out what kind of infection you have, and we have to clean up this poorly done surgery. So I ended up going to Colorado to the Stebbins Clinic with Dr. Provencher, who did a revision surgery. He found the infection. I was on a PICC line for three months. I had a PICC line in my heart. But wow. he accidentally severed my suprascapular nerve during the surgery,
4: Jeez. and
2: um, when I woke up from the surgery, I knew something was wrong. I had had pain that was unbearable, unexplainable, and um, essentially, it was kind of gaslighted by the medical industry for many months. Um, I then was looking all—I mean, traveling the country for doctors because my pain had exacerbated and so had my dysfunction. <clears throat> the nerve studies were showing that my infraspinatus and my supraspinatus and my trapezius were not working. Um, and I ended up having to do several unnecessary surgeries. Looking back, because I kept getting misdiagnosed. But right when, with nerve stuff, nerves are very, very intricate, and there's mm-hmm. a time frame. If you don't act with nerve damage, then after 18 months, there's no viability, no matter what you do. So you're left without a functioning limb. So fast wow. Lim- forward, limb, limb, because you're as you probably know, your rotator cuff. There's it has your supraspinatus and infraspinatus, teres minor, and subscapularis, and two of those muscles were dead. And part of my mid wasn't working either. So my scapula was no longer working well either. Oh my God. Um, and so I went through a series of six surgeries to get up to the point of April. I'm sorry, five surgeries to get up to the point of April 2021, 2020 when a different doctor finally did a nerve decompression surgery. Nobody believed me when I said, I think my nerve is severed. I think my nerve is severed. I think my mm-hmm. nerve is severed. And we went into an hour-long decompression surgery, and I woke up eight hours later to a nerve transfer of my spinal accessory nerve to my suprascapular notch. So basically, they took the nerve that powers your lower trapezius to try to hopefully help re some function in your supraspinatus and infraspinatus. Gosh, and wow. I was told I would have to wait a year to see if that happened. So wow. from April of 2020 to April of 2021, I was doing as much PT as I could, but the limb was not working. I mean, I had my arm basically just hung by its side. So... April of 21, we did another nerve study to see what had happened over the year. Because mm-hmm. typically with the supraspinatus to grow, after an injury, it kind of lays dormant for a little while. And then it's one millimeter of day that the nerve regenerates. So that's a very long time for a very long nerve.
4: Mm-hmm. So they said
2: between three to four months, typically to see any activation of the supraspinatus and another full on eight to nine months before the infraspinatus might have any action potential to it. So in April, a year out from the surgery, we did the nerve study and there was zero nerve potentials in my trapezius or my infraspinatus or my supraspinatus. Effectively, the surgery didn't work. And the surgery took my trapezius, which was working, and killed it to try to save my shoulder, which didn't work. So in April of 21, uh, my PT dismissed me from care and told me to get on disability and start seeing an occupational therapist to learn how to live with my disability. And um I, I will tell you that from probably September of 2019 up until that point, it was a very, very, very dark time for me. I mean, incredibly mm-hmm. dark time. The pain was unbearable. And because my limb and my scapula were no longer working well, it herniated my my cervical, my thoracic and my lumbar spine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I was really lost and in a really dark place. And then COVID happened on top of that and it isolated everybody. And I remember literally one of my yoga students came to me crying and she was like, I'm so isolated. I'm so depressed. And I had empathy for her, but I had been dealing with that isolation for six months before COVID even hit. Yeah. And I, I just, it was a really strange place. Um, but in April of last year, I uh, i realized at that point, because when I first started having to have all these surgeries, I mean, I was living in a sling for a year. I literally lived in a sling for an entire year of my life. And my studio was definitely suffering from September of 19 until February of 20 when COVID hit. And then I, I really... Put myself in great debt trying to keep the studio alive. Um mm-hmm. I should have really closed it when COVID hit, but I didn't. And I tried to keep it open, keep it open, keep it open, but I had to keep stepping away for surgeries. And so anyway, in April last year I decided to close the doors of the studio and try to regroup, try to figure out what to do with my life. And at that point I still had a limb that was laying by its side. At that point it had no function whatsoever. Wow. And so I um I actually had found Joe Dispenza's meditations in November of 2019. And I mean I always had a meditation practice Um, And I really tried to stick with it during all of these uh, surgeries. But I will say my yoga practice was always my antidepressant. It was always Mm -hmm. my best friend, you know, just like you guys probably feel so strong, like it's everything to you. And it was taken away from me Yeah, and I really struggled to figure out how to like emotionally function without it.
1: And there's a kind well, of grief there that happens.
2: It was a huge grief. And I also was in huge denial because everybody would ask me throughout 2020, you know, what are you going to do with your life now that you can not teach yoga? And I was like, I'm going to teach yoga again. I'm not, I'm, this isn't kept taking away my life. This is, I'm going to rebuild this. Once it, my nerves regenerate, once I get back, I'm going to rebuild this. And so um, I was in complete denial, but also trying to grieve at the same time. And so when April came, I, I got out of that shock phase and I said, okay, I, I can't keep the studio alive anymore. It's, it's, I'm in the red. And uh, I just really went into my meditations. I literally, I had done a Dota Spencer retreat in January of that year. I did another one in May, another one in October of last year. And I, I worked with my meditations every day. And what some of the stuff that he does in his meditations, really working on imagining in your mind, what you want to occur in your life. And once you connect your heart and your mind to that place, you can really create it in real life. So I legit meditated every day for over a month that I, my full Ashtanga primary series practice, I, every day I would sit down, close my oh, eyes and I would do my practice in my mind.
1: That's fantastic.
2: And then I started blindfolding myself and standing at the top of my mat and clasping my hands together and moving my limb in space. Wow, And I got to a point where I had a little bit more function. And then I aligned with this really outside the box physical therapist, who's also a chiropractor, who's also a physio, who does like so many different things. And he was the first person I ever met because everybody else threw me away. I mean, everybody, every doctor, every therapist threw me away and I'd gone through tons of them, but he was willing to work with me. And he really believed that the body is an incredible thing. And even if those nerves were dead, my body would find a way to mm-hmm. find function. But even more than that, my body would find a way to regenerate those nerves. Incredible. So I just
1: I... want to say that I'm completely stunned by this news, and especially because I'm watching you move your hands in <laughs> unison throughout the whole conversation. I just, I, it's only been a year. It's only been a year. And I'm nowhere
2: near where I want to be. And the truth is I'll never do another nerve study But I have, with working with Tino, I worked with him three to four days a week for over a year. How Um, did you work
0: together? What did he have you doing? So
2: he would, basically, he works out of like, kind of like a physical therapy clinic or a personal Mm -hmm. training studio, lots of weights and stuff, but everything was was manual. My previous physical therapist, I would beg them, please grab my limb, hold my limb in space. And then move my limb so I can help recreate neural transmission mm. from my brain to my limb. Right, mm-hmm. and How these other PTs—that's not really known in the in the physical therapy world. It's not. You use bands, you use straps, you use. If right. they do anything with your limb, it's like right after surgery to help keep the range of motion. Mm-hmm. But there really isn't training um, and basic physical therapy to help re manipulate the brain. Rewire the brain, essentially. Um, so he was willing to do that. So our first, I mean the beginning, I I can't tell you how pathetic my body was. It was just in terrible disarray. And he worked with me manually. So he would grab my limb and move it in different spaces. But really what he did that was really different, he always worked my whole body. When you go to Mm -hmm. normal PT for my left limb, they never worked my right limb. They never worked my legs. They never did anything. Mm -hmm. But he explained how my my lower trunk, if I could strengthen that and stabilize that again then it would work its way up. That I mm. could work through my erector spine muscles. I could be t- talking to my trapezius, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we did very little with my upper body in the beginning.
1: <laughs> like, and then- like, like Richard saying the the kidney wings and the <laughs> the kidneys being the, the 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 origin of the arms, like that. Exactly. Yeah.
4: Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: That yeah. kind
2: of idea. And, yeah. um, and so it was a combination of him working my lower body and manually working my upper body to get me to a place where I then could work functionally in addition to that with weights. But mm-hmm. it was always like both sides with bars. So it was nothing free weight type stuff because mm-hmm. I had absolutely no control of this limb. It's not even just my shoulder. Really the bigger issue is my scapula. My scapula was flying all over the place because the right. trapezius and the rhomboids were not supporting it. So um, working diligently through that year in addition to being on my mat and doing whatever I possibly could. Mm-hmm. And I really applied different modifications that I gave students through the years, but I had to get even more creative with how I worked. Now, the great thing about my injury is that it mainly affects external rotation of my left limb and anything overhead. And I still struggle with that on my left side, no doubt about mm-hmm. it. Um, but like chaturangas, I can do a plank, no problem, even with those muscles missing, but mm-hmm. chaturanga's really hard. Um, And so I I was finding through my practice what I could and couldn't do at that time Mm -hmm. and just trying to work with it and continuing with my meditations. And the outcome has been a year later. So April of this year, um, I was able to, I still work with Tino once a week, but I was Mm -hmm. able to start working with a a more traditional physical therapist because I have enough function now to start doing some stuff on my own. So I see her twice a week and I see Tino once or twice a week and I do my practice every day. Um, the pain is pretty exorbitant. It's mainly my spine. It's really my, the herniations in my neck, because no matter what mm-hmm. yeah. my, my upper trap does all the work of my middle and my lower trap, my middle mm-hmm. and my lower trap don't really work very well. My supraspinatus, infraspinatus don't work well. So, um, that's a daily struggle, but the yoga practice helps and meditation helps. And, um, having gotten the function that I did, I mean, I tried throughout I'm trying to think from May of last year, I closed the studio in April, but then in May, June and July, I did a three days in the whole month, Mysore. And people mm-hmm. came and I started teaching and I was doing what I could. And then I took a break for a while. And then in January, I tried to start up a couple days a week and it and the space wasn't right. I wasn't ready. Um, yeah. And fast forward, I began teaching one day a week, uh, Mysore class. And then my mom, who's been very, very, very sick for many years, um, my sister called me in June and told me that she was in ICU and she was non-responsive and to get up there. And I, I have done that many times. My mom, my mom was born with epidermolysis bullosa, which is a very rare genetic condition. Um, she, it compromises your immune system, but she was actually born without any hand, uh, skin in her hands or feet. She didn't have it till she was no. three. She, uh, her, it, the, the disease affects your dermis and epidermis. So she literally was born with her skin would crack and open. Um, it was very, very strange. But it, the, vibe, the worst part of that was her immune system was always compromised. So she caught everything you could imagine. And she had breast mm-hmm. cancer. She had lung cancer. She had open heart surgery. She had everything. And then the stroke took her down in 2017. And I would travel up every month to visit her. Um, and there were a number of really big scares that we thought she was going to pass. <clears throat> but she held on. And this June um it ironically enough my sister called and i still was kind of in shock because it's happened so many times that, that mm-hmm. i've gotten that call and i've rushed up there but my son my son knew something he like knew is like we have to get there right away mm-hmm. and um luckily i got to go up to south Carolina with my son and spend a couple of days with my mom mm-hmm. um before she passed and <clears throat> when i came back to florida after she passed away a student who had been coming to the weekly classes Uh, she was like, please come look at my birthing center. I really think this would be such a beautiful space for you to teach classes. And I will never forget, I walked into the birthing center and the peace of the space, and I I literally felt my mom's presence.
3: Mm. And I just looked at her and I was like, can I teach her every day? And she was like, you ready to do that? And I was like, yes. And so that's really how it all kind of came together. Because I
2: was trying to say, I, I did, was I ready physically? Could I do it? Would the students come again? You know, I had all these questions, but after my mom passed, it was almost like her way of telling me, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You wow. need to get back to it. So wow. amazing. So that's oh kind my of God. a very quick synopsis of my, yeah. of my situation. Um, but it was insane. And uh, I will tell you that it really changed my perspective on Western medicine, which I always, I mean, I worked hard. I did stem cell mm-hmm. treatment. I spent $30,000 on stem cells during this process, trying to avoid all these surgeries. And um, I I, I had a lot of unfortunate uh, experiences with the medical industry, but when i knew as a person who knows my body so intimately after the nerve was cut, I continued to be told by doctor after doctor that there was no way my nerve could be severed. Mm
4: -hmm. And
2: um, it was the biggest gaslight for me. And it really drove me crazy because once I proved them wrong, and it's like everybody was like filling the room to figure out what was wrong. And as soon as they figured out what was wrong, oh, your nerve was cut. It's like everybody left the room. And right. then I was stuck with no function whatsoever. And it was just really mind, mind-numbing. But, um, but that's, a,
1: that's a malpractice case, isn't it?
2: It is.
4: Okay. Yes.
1: All right. I think that – and that's all you'll say on the matter?
2: For now. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. They have insurance
1: for these sorts of things.
2: Um, they do.
3: <clears throat> but yeah. I will
2: also add one point that – I might be jumping ahead of myself, but I, in my very, very deep state of depression and anxiety during all of that time, I, my sister who does believe in antidepressants and things of that nature encouraged me to, to get on them. And so I, I did that because Mm -hmm. I thought maybe this will help me when I can't access yoga. Right. Um, and I just want to say, and hopefully people in the podcast hear me, and I know that there's two sides of very, very strong argument but I vehemently oppose antidepressant medication because I saw firsthand what it can do to people. Mm-hmm. Um, I have never in my life thought of suicide. And when I started taking antidepressants, there were ideations that I had until I stopped taking them. Okay. And I believe very strongly that I had to endure that so that I could share that with others. But I also believe it helped me understand my father's death
1: a lot too. Oh. I I just want to say that my suicidal ideation stopped when I got divorced. (laughs) I I can't recommend that enough to people.
3: Amen to that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Something along those, along those lines. um, I think when I, I, I I had a chiropractor, uh, Harmony's cousin look at a, an X-ray of my spine and it's, it's riddled with osteoporosis and uh, bone spurs and, at a certain point, you—you you, I had to kind of accept that I can't really do a profound forward bend again, which is to say I can't do Paschimottanasana, and I can't put my foot behind my head ever again. That's not going to happen. So if that's not going to happen, then my dreams of being certified are over. <laughs> and they're all kind of like that all kind of starts to 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 sink in, like, well, this is what I thought I was gonna do, and then I kind of devoted like decades of my life to yoga that I could have been spent painting, and so that that is just a hobby. So, like, who am I now? Oh yeah, what is my life right now? And can you talk about how that that feels about that? That's sure. What you are and who you are?
2: Um, it's a really, really great question. I, as I said, once I started going through this. traumatic experience, people would ask me, what are you going to do? And I was very angry because I was like, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to get better. Mm. But now as I sit here and I understand and have accepted that I will not ever be the same, that I will never get to do most, if not any of third series again, that I will never get certified, um, and more importantly, that I just, there's basic things I cannot, I can take my arm out now in space, but I can't hold, I can't hold a half a gallon of milk in my arm. Right. I can't, I can barely control it by itself, let alone do functional things with it.
4: Mm-hmm. Wow. So
2: when I got to a place of acceptance, I then had to begin asking myself, who am I and what mm-hmm. am I and what am I, what is my purpose and what am I supposed to do now? and um where i stand now maybe 7 months from asking myself that question <laughs> um i really believe strongly that things happen for a reason and i believe that that my experiences didn't happen to me just to make my life difficult i believe that i i had to endure that so i could learn lessons and be able to share those lessons with others mm-hmm. and i am working on figuring out exactly what that means um I know, and I'll tell you guys, I mean, I tried, I, I've definitely done some audiobooks and I um, have applied to tons and tons of jobs and uh, nobody wants a yoga teacher who owned her own studio for so many years, you know? So I, I kind of was relegated back to the world of yoga and I thought, okay, well, maybe I can figure this out. And uh, right now where I stand, I've always been a good yoga teacher. It is my passion. I love it. I can no longer, maybe, uh, maybe I don't appeal anymore to advanced practitioners who want to really deepen their practice and they know I'm partially disabled. Um, but I certainly can still work with the average person who wants to have a yoga practice of some kind or someone who wants to heal their body through yoga or, you know, reduce their anxiety through yoga, things like that. And I'm working really hard to put my energies into helping people that have been through, maybe not the experience I've been through, but need whatever I can offer them. And mm-hmm. uh that's kind of where I've been working recently, not only with my Daily Meister program, starting it back, but really trying to work to get back to teaching some workshops. And um I still do a lot of private sessions. I've been doing a lot more life coaching the last year and a half.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um I do a lot more teaching of meditation practices and um just health and wellness in general. Um I did I put a lot more time into my YouTube channel because I, you know, I've always known yoga is it's not accessible to everyone if you don't have any money and I never turned students away from my studio because they didn't have money. But I thought YouTube is a great platform to try to share knowledge with people for free. So I feel like I am very, very drawn to wanting to share messages that I have, whether people can afford them or not. Um, Mm -hmm. and eventually I would love to do some public speaking on some of the topics that I've been through and bring it to a larger audience. Um, and then, terms of who am I um I'm a woman who is very broken and uh and I'm trying to rebuild my life and I faced in tremendous obstacles even today um from various different sources and uh I recognize that I have to keep working and keep trying and life is hard and good things happen to bad, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Mm. And I have to just keep moving forward. And I think it's important that I show my child very, it's very important to me that I demonstrate to my son, um, you know, strength and, um, the ability to overcome and the ability Mm. to keep moving on no matter what happens. And that's a message that I know that I really want to share on a bigger level. So Mm -hmm to be continued, I guess.
0: <laughs> Amazing. It's so interesting. I love that you also touch upon the the using the practice to get that like endorphin rush, right? To like keep your, you know, basically using it as sort of as a mood enhancer or yes. balancer, right? And and that in itself is a kind of like addiction. And it's what keeps people coming back to the practice. And they say, oh, if I don't practice, I don't feel good. If I don't practice, I don't, you know, I'm like angry all day or I feel depressed. Or And I understand that completely because I know I remember a time in my life where I also felt like that, like I needed to practice every day or I felt like mentally unstable or like my mood would take a deep dive. And um, it's interesting because I also kind of recognize, looking back, how that's actually not the yoga in a weird way. It is like this sort of addictive, like you're addicted to these endorphins to these sort of you know chemicals and and you're using it maybe as a in a to, as a tool as to help promote like mental health and stability and balance but at some point you kind of have to move beyond that because it's not always going to be that kind of tool for you it's not always going to release those endorphins it's not always going to give you that yoga high and so then what right so how do you learn to balance your mind and keep that like mental stability and keep that, um, you know, not have those, those high fluxes, like those highs and lows without using the asana as your fix?
2: Well, And that's a great question. So what I've learned in my experimentation of self um, is to your point, it helps so much, but how does it help? Right. So Mm -hmm. I had to really question that because if I couldn't access my asana practice physically, how did I do it mentally to get to that place? And what I learned was the way that Joe Dispenza brings it together is so succinct. Through the breath work, through the activation of and through the movement and the real focus, one-pointed focus of the ashtanga practice, we're able to bring the heart and mind into coherence every time we do an asana practice.
4: Mm-hmm. So
2: I, I, when I realized that, then I said to myself, okay, How do I bring my mind and my heart into coherence without the use of the asanas that I cannot access right now? Mm -hmm. And it it was in addition to daily meditations and breath work, you know, and as Guruji used to tell us how important the breath work was, I was able to recreate um, an anxiety release uh, through my pranayama practice and through my meditations and was able to find that mental stability without the asanas at all that I used to find. With my own, only with my center practice, and that has made all the difference for me personally. Because while I'm now that I'm doing yoga again, I, I covet it just as much as I used to. Um, <laughs> I it's important for me to know that I don't need to get on my mat to to feel that I can release anxiety or I can stabilize mm-hmm. my mood. I just have to access access the tools that the practice gives us, but we can pull them out of the practice and individualize them. And I think that it's really important that people do know that. Um, I think it's cool that the Ashtanga practice does become so addictive in a way (laughs) um, because it's such a good and healthy addiction to have. Mm -hmm. Um, But once it was taken away from me to mourn the loss of such a coveted experience and practice, I had to figure out a way to move on. And Mm -hmm. I am really grateful and lucky that, because I used to tell students, I really used to tell students, Once you learn this practice, no one can take it from you. Mm -hmm. It is in your mind. It is in your heart and your soul. And then it is up to you to access it whenever you want it. And I found myself in a place a couple of years ago where some doctor did take my practice away from me. Mm -hmm. And um, now I know that I can still access it even when I'm 80 or God forbid, you know, something else happens and I really can't practice yoga anymore. I no longer struggle with that incredible pain of not being able to have something that I desperately want. And for me, I will say, just touching back on again, the the idea of antidepressants or ways to help depression or anxiety, I strongly believe yoga is a powerful, powerful Mm. therapy and medicine Mm. and a far better medicine than any medical drugs available to us today um, but it is important that, and now I do try to teach this to students. It's important that you understand this can be a medicine and a tool for you, but what part of this is actually the medicine mm-hmm. and the part that's the medicine is the mind heart coherence that we actually achieve without knowing we're achieving it through asana practice.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. I, I, that's one of my favorite meditations to do these days is like the heart, um, the meditation from the heart math Institute, which jo- Dr. Jonah spends is a board member member of actually. Yes. In, bringing the head and the heart into coherence and you can even like move it down to the gut, to the like, you know, belly, to the, you know, pelvic floor and like bringing everything into coherence and doing that just through meditation is amazing. It's such a incredible tool, you know, and, and then also like you were saying, the breath work and, and anyone can do that, whether they have anyone, you know, function of their limbs or not, you know, as long as as you can breathe, you can do pranayama, you can do breath work, and it's it's such a powerful tool, I think, to have. And I, like you say, I think that's what makes the practice so powerful is that combination, right, of the breath, the movement, the like tuning in to the heart, the mind, the like being in the present moment, you know, and using it more as a moving meditation than exactly.
3: as exactly,
0: you know, a, a gymnastics <laughs> demonstration. <laughs>
2: And I'll tell you, too, I think now that I really understand that to such a different degree, I don't really care. Not that I ca- not that I coveted third series by any means, but
4: mm-hmm.
2: I do not care what sequence I practice ever again. Mm-hmm. I just care that I can connect with myself and work with my body and my mind. And um, I hope that translates later to being able to help other students who get into that really addicted place, which I was in at one point. Mm-hmm. I think we all have been in. you know we want the next pose we want the next sequence we want we want we want and uh and now i really understand how to just be and just appreciate whatever is now yeah yeah Yeah. that's so
0: it's so beautiful and so important and maybe it is like you say like uh part of the progression part of the path where you know you kind of have to go through the different phases in order to reach that that space that place but it is necessary to reach that place, I think. Otherwise, <laughs> yes. you don't really get what the yoga is for exactly. or what it's doing.
2: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I certainly hope that no one else has to endure what I did to reach that
3: place. Right. right. But uh, I hope it doesn't cost you what it costs me. But I understand now. Yeah. Hmm.
1: yeah. If, if we could go back to a previous epoch in your life. Sure. Because we're doing this in reverse, you said.
0: Or we could go back to the beginning. No,
1: we're not going back to the beginning. We're going to keep with it. Let's go back to the future. No. So we're going to go back to the future. So it, it just struck mm-hmm. me that the, your organization and your fortitude, your will to thrive and live is so much a piece of you and is what's gotten you through this, this period in your life. It, it reminds me of when I met you. Krista, the, the first time I had, um, I had gotten involved in an organization, uh, the Joyce Foundation with Gene Ruffin and Gene has, um, a bunch of charter schools near Orlando. And so we were going to fly down there and find s- somebody who could run the show for us. And I, I called, uh, Tim, uh, Tim Feldman, Timo, <laughs> Tino and, 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 Timo and, Tim. and Timo and Kim. <laughs> um, I called Tim and Tim's and it was like really with there's no question like like, oh, you want to speak to Krista. Krista's the best person for you to speak <laughs> to about anything like this. Oh, that's sweet. And so I just remember, I remember so clearly driving, you know, down that windy road with all the Spanish moss and the old oak trees to get to your studio and meeting you there and just being overwhelmed by your organization and your energy and Gene and I we walked out and he said, you know, she's going to she's going to be running the organization. <laughs> and so, and so they're not going to need us very much longer. <laughs> and I wonder if you can talk about that period in your life 2011 um, you've got your your. I think you had a one year old at that time. I did. You've got a studio, and now you're being presented with okay. Now you're gonna you're gonna teach yoga to kids in Orlando, and and what was going on for you in that period of your life, like uh. it was right after you met Harmony. No, it was not. (laughs) Just a couple of days. I think we go
3: way back. A couple of days after you met Harmony, (laughs) as I understand. (laughs) I've known Harmony since like 2003, I think. Um, Oh, come on. But anyway, I will say, um, you know, Russell,
2: that was a really, really, in a lot of ways, a wonderful point in my life because um, my son was a year old and my studio was a little bit older than my son. And, I have so much energy, but I also, I've always been very passionate about wanting to help people in various capacities. And I've always just treasured this practice and I treasured the lineage and I treasured my yoga teacher. And um, when you presented me with an opportunity to help bring yoga in schools, I felt so, so excited about it because I had had a very challenging childhood Mm -hmm. and I didn't have tools to really handle anxiety and depression growing up. And it was not until I found yoga in college that I really felt like I found a true solution for my lifestyle, like for me to sustain a really healthy mindset, attitude, lifestyle, everything. It was when I found yoga that it really all flipped for me. And I felt like I was so lucky and so blessed to ever even be a little part of something so big that could really make lasting changes in the lives of children. Because if you can introduce these concepts and principles to children when they're that age, oh my gosh, Uh oh my gosh, what's possible for them? And even if those kids didn't like it then or they didn't stick with it for long then, when they're 20 or they're 30, I I knew that they would still remember the teachings they were being able to, to be exposed to. So for me, I was very honored for that opportunity, but I was extremely overwhelmed. I'm not gonna
3: lie,
2: I um, I, but I wanted to do it all, and I used to think I really did. I can't say that I thought I was invincible, but something along those lines, right? And yeah. I I got very little sleep. I probably slept an average of three or four hours a night, just with my son and my business alone, and then adding on the responsibility of starting up this program in Orlando, it wasn't. It was overwhelming for me, but it was incredible for me, and I was able to do it, and I. I, I literally remember when I first started teaching the classes at Ivy Hall and getting the program off the ground, I, um, Ivy Hall was 50-minute drive from my studio. Wow. And Five-zero. Five oh, five my
1: goodness.
2: Five-zero. So I would teach. I would get up even early. I think at that time, I was get up at like 2.30 in the morning, do my practice. Then I would teach. The mornings that I would teach at Ivy Hall, I had another teacher come on to finish the last 30 minutes of my MISO program. And I would drive to school and I would teach all day. And I would drive straight from school to get my son, and then be mommy, and go to bed, manage the business, and then do it all over again. But it was it was such an incredible experience for me, and I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to be part of it. Um, It it didn't help my relationship with my ex husband, but there was really nothing (gasps) to help that. So.
0: That's when things started to that's fall all apart. Like, no, it's not.
2: It's actually not. They were falling apart years before that. So yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, you, I think that's like a hallmark, a Krista Shirley hallmark. Just the amount of energy you bring to everything you do is, I mean, it's, it's overflowing.
1: <laughs> I have to say that um, it, that was such a crazy, I had, I mean, I have, I was given a job that I didn't know how to do either. And so I was trying to learn how to be your supervisor I in, know. in San Francisco while you're doing a job that you're trying out. On top of that, I was supervising Sharon Moon in Kenya. <laughs> it's her birthday today, by the way. She oh, said, happy
2: birthday. Happy birthday, <laughs> Sharon. Happy She's birthday, 70, Sharon.
1: 74. <laughs> she just got Botox injections all, and fillers in her face, she told me for her birthday it's awesome she recommended it um and so i'm like every day was a nightmare for sharon in in kenya it was like always a problem every day but i felt like i could just rely on krista everything was going to be fine in orlando i would check in with you so how you're doing great and then like try and solve some nightmare problem for you know sharon in I was just like, ah, this isn't. This thing isn't. This is insane, Gene. What are you (laughs) having me do? It's insane.
2: I think. First of all, I think that you did a really good job, and (laughs) I, um, I really do treasure. I, you know, I, you guys let me build a a curriculum. I got to build a curriculum for this school, and the year that I taught at Ivy Han, I really treasured a helping them learn discipline. Mm -hmm. be helping them be exposed a little bit to Sanskrit and world history Mm -hmm. and so many different concepts that, you know, this tiny little school in, I don't even remember what county in Florida it's in, but it's Mm -hmm. in in Lake Helen, which nobody knows where it exists. You know, these (laughs) kids really were getting something so cool. And uh, I I, I might take my hat off to you because I know you were also overseeing someone in California at the time too. Yeah, Jen Jen
1: Jen Brown in Encinitas. Yeah, that's right. And she had that one school where um, Manju Joyce's wife, Nancy, was teaching. And so, yeah, it was the three of you. That's right.
2: And it was a really interesting time. I remember I actually... So my ex-husband and I were together for a, nine years before we got married. My son, in 2011, in October, I was literally... I got married. We were on our honeymoon in France. And I was emailing David Melotis about the curriculum. I'll never forget it. I was like trying to... like.
4: <laughs> yeah but it,
2: but it meant a lot to me because like i said not having had tools to when i was growing up i would have done anything to try to help bring some of that to fruition and i'm grateful right. that i got to
1: yeah and i I, that's how I felt about it that it really was you know I, I was in louisiana when i started doing yoga um and i was i was we were not even middle class you know let alone you know, Same here. privileged, but I think there was still some white privilege going on for me that, uh, I still somehow culturally had access to this thing that really helped the shit I was in and somehow it, it got to me. The yoga? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I and I thought, well, you know, no one should have to be lucky to have a tool like this available.
4: I agree. You. I couldn't yeah. agree with you
1: more. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: It's so beneficial. And I was so
2: grateful when I, I, I knew after the year I couldn't carry on with the load I was taking right. on. Mm-hmm. And I was so grateful to be able to help. I remember we opened another school. And I was able to place two of my teachers from my yoga studio Mm. in those two schools. And those, those programs carried on for years, for years. And that was so incredible to see.
1: Jan was the principal at one of them, right? Jan was the principal at one in
2: Oak Hill. And actually I don't, I'm not still not in touch with, um, I I went to one girl and she worked it for a couple of years. And then another one of my yoga students took it over Mm -hmm. and she really thrived there Until that particular teacher quit to go off with her husband or fiance or something. And I think the program ended at that point in time. Um but I know that program lasted for a very I mean up until maybe two years ago. The one in Ivy Hawn, um, I do remember the funding was pulled from that school yeah a few years before Oak Hill happened. But but it carried on for a long time and it helped I think it I think it made a positive impact on a lot of students.
1: So
0: Well let's let's keep going. We're going okay. back now. Yep. Maybe <laughs>
1: to when you met, Krista. <laughs> yeah, and then we can mm. talk
0: about Mysore. <laughs> but you and I didn't meet in Mysore. We met in Thailand.
3: We did. We yoga did.
0: Thailand. Paul Delahan's uh, yoga training center at that time, no longer in existence. Now it's Samhita Resort or okay. something.
4: Okay. <laughs> Samhita
0: Resort Center or I don't know. It's a it's a full life life commitment of uh, yoga and biking and all kinds of things. <laughs> but when we went there it was very grassroots, a little yes, uh yes. little yoga shala on the beach and little bungalows that were made of wood and full of um
2: mosquitoes.
0: Mosquitoes exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and I was there working mm-hmm. as a assisting on the retreats and doing some managing of the center. And you were there on one of his teacher trainings.
2: Yes. And I believe that was November of 2003. I want to
0: say. I think it was, um, yeah, 2003 or maybe 2004. One of the t- Yeah.
2: Maybe it was 2004. No, I graduated from college in 2004. You're right. So I went on his teacher training in November of 2004. Yeah. And that's when I met Harmony because she was every day assisting Paul and <laughs> dropping
3: me back in backbends and telling me I could do it. Yeah. <laughs> you can do it.
2: Absolutely.
0: That's, that's my signature, right? You can do it. You can do it.
1: <laughs> and, I mean, she must have, um, like, you know, when you get a talented student in class, she must have had a little kind of a shine to her. Well,
0: you had been practicing yoga for some time before that. This wasn't your first First no, no yeah, I had been practicing
2: <laughs> um, for maybe almost two years at that point. Uh, I had I had started with a woman named Karen and some leg classes. She quickly ta- led me to Ronaldo Liam, who had this little winter park yoga meister program. I literally learned primary series in three months before Karen moved to Scotland and Ronaldo moved to Miami. And then <laughs> after three months of having a teacher, I had no teacher for a couple years until I I did. Manju Joyce's week long teacher training. I mm-hmm. want to say that summer of two thousand four, and then I came to Thailand. That was my first real ever like immersion into pranayama and chanting and all mm-hmm. the things. And um, I'll never forget. Like I remember the first time that you came to drop me back, and you did. You always say, "You can do it. You got it. You got this." <laughs> and uh, it was so really. It was really imperative for me because Paul was trying to start teaching me second series. I, d- I wasn't going to teach myself on my own. And I literally right. had only been given Pashasana like two years before that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I remember through that month when he was giving me a lot of different postures, you, you, when I would show that I was like nervous, you would always be like, you can do it. You can do it. <laughs> That sounds so you can do it. sounds <laughs> And I remember, I think you were going to straight to India yeah. from the retreat and that you are one of the main reasons I was so inspired to go to India. Um, so I wanted you to know that because I remember well, the, Paul too, he would, it, I found it interesting because I remember him saying along with David Williams and David Swinson, I'd done all these little workshops, but they would always huh. say, you know, you don't have to go to India to learn yoga. And I saw Paul going to India to study with Guruji. And so I was like, well, if you're going, I really want to go. And then you were right. telling me you were going. And I was like, oh, I'm going.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and you came like that year, like 2005. Yeah. And then I saw you in Mysore. <laughs> I,
1: I always like to ask this question because I think it's, it's, it's important uh, for, especially the listener at home who may not have been to India. I was, I was dead broke. I was homeless living in my university closet. Like I had found a closet to live in and scrapped together, scraped together the money to go to India. And that's how I did it. And it just like, I think it's so impossible for so many of our listeners to imagine, like, how did you do that? How did do you it to get the money together. How did you get there? How did you buy the ticket? How did you do that? Cause I kind of, I actually have a fun story. We were both kind of scrappy. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: you know, we were so, always like, there's like trust funders who get to go. And yes. the rest of us are like dirt poor. Hustling, and
4: like yes. hustling yes. little ladies. Barely
0: able to eat. <laughs> and we come back and we have zero money and are like living in our parents' basement or in a closet. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah no, that's pretty much my story. I, um, When I'd gotten back from Thailand, uh, I was, I began working full time teaching yoga for a while and, um, a quick backstory too. I was supposed to go to graduate school after I graduated, but my mom was really, really sick for a period of time. And so I deferred graduate school and had been practicing yoga. And then I came back and started, um, teaching yoga classes. So when I was ready, getting ready to do my first trip to India, I bought a one-way ticket, but I thought I was going to go for a month. and. at that point in my life, my ex-husband and I were still dating, but we had broken up and I had actually bought him a ticket to India, and, but we were broken up. And mm-hmm. um, I decided since we were broken up, right before I left, I literally put everything I owned in storage. I gave up all my yoga classes. I gave my clients to different yoga teachers and I told myself, I don't know when I'm coming home. And I had very little money, but I had prepaid for the ticket in January of the year and it was May and I was going. And so I had a couple thousand dollars to my name and I mean a couple. <laughs> And mm-hmm. I went to India. I arrived on May 1st. And actually, my ex-husband decided to come along with me. We got back together at that point in time. And he actually studied with Guruji and Saraswati for a couple months, which is funny because oh, wow, he never did yeah. yoga. <laughs> but um, I actually went with a yoga student of mine and my ex-husband on very first trip. And my one month turned into a 10-month period of time abroad. Wow. Um, my yoga student stayed for a month and left. And Kwong left after a couple months and went back home. But after the first few months in India, Guruji was going on tour. And so I went back to Thailand and did um, some studies. I want to say it was just a month of studies in Thailand and then went back to India. And I was I was absolutely hooked. And I will say I started doing work while I was in India. I have I used to – in my previous life, I was a massage therapist. And so I mm-hmm. was doing massages while I was in Mysore. And that paid my rent. It paid my Shala fees. So I was able to stay and stay and stay. And that was at a point back then you could – You could stay in the country for six months, Mm -hmm. and then you just had to do a quick hop.
3: Yeah, that's right. Come
2: back, and Guruji would let you stay as long as you wanted. Yeah, so I had no intention of coming home when I did. I actually had. Um, I'm sure you remember the Russian cars. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they had just built their their. Oh, their mansion. Their mansion in in Gokulam. <laughs> yeah, and I was the first person to rent that space. They literally had a big puja dinner the night before. Yeah. I stayed the night in the apartment, and I woke up to robbers robbing me. Oh no! Um, legit, there was a man. I was laying in my bed. There was a man st- staring over me like this. Oh my god! With his hand on the wall, and I just started screaming really, really loudly.
1: What? They ran the f- off.
4: Fuck.
2: Yeah, and I went. <sighs> I had just paid for another month of shala fees. And I had to go spend the day at the police station with um, Ramesh and Rocky and Ramesh had to speak on my behalf because I'm a woman and there was no husband or father for
3: me. I mean, I was like,
2: what is
0: going on right now? Yeah. Why is there a single woman in India living on her own? (laughs) She must be a prostitute.
3: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So that was like mind bending experience.
2: And then I had no money and I had, I mean, I had to get my new passport, everything. So, I remember having to go to
3: Saraswati oh my and tell her what happened and say, Can I possibly have my shala feast back so I can get home? Oh, <laughs> oh my God. man.
1: And she said no, of course.
3: No, she said yes. <laughs> she did. She did oh, she's it. A sweetheart. She really oh, did it. But I, w- I wasn't sure if she would. but you she You got to totally be the
1: only it. one. Yeah. I got robbed in Saraswati's house. <laughs> really?
0: Yeah. That sounds terrifying, though. Well, oh I mean,
1: I wasn't. Uh,
0: you didn't have a man standing sleeping. over you <laughs> No, the, while you were sleeping. Oh, my God. I would have cleaner, screamed so loud.
1: The cleaner went I into I my did. bathroom and stole my last 50 bucks.
0: That happens to everyone.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> it really does. I mean, I'll be honest with you guys. I feel like I can say this now in public, but Morty, uh, 2013, yeah. 2012, I had stayed in the house. I guess Sarah Swati's house was right next to the Shala. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. My son was two or three. Anyway, I and bought was- a washing machine. Mm-hmm. And I He kept, was
1: like Sherat's, uh college friend, Murti, and, and like yeah, okay. really really close, super to close, yeah.
2: And um, that year when I left, I put my washing machine and dry my washing machine in storage with Murti. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I came back the next year, I found out he'd been renting it out to yoga students all year.
3: <laughs> the
1: washing machine. <laughs> yeah,
3: that's so smart.
1: Jesus.
2: And I
3: couldn't get it back. I couldn't get my washing machine back because he had rented it to somebody else. Oh it was my like, god. Oh, oh, I was like,
2: oh man. yeah.
4: Yeah, but yeah, so that was happen. my first
2: trip. And I um, once I went home, I was totally broke. I had nothing to my name. I, I literally spent about a year rebuilding classes, making enough money. And I did the same thing. I went back to India for three months. And <laughs> and then 2007 and 2008, I went back for two or three months. And then 2009, I went. And that's when I'll never forget. Sherat told me, after practice one day that I needed to come to the office and I thought I was in trouble. Sure. Yeah Yeah, you were
1: (laughs) you're very much in trouble.
2: (laughs) And I actually did not really I I did not want to get authorized when I did because I knew what a responsibility it was. Yeah. And um I remember emotional a very emotional. And I remember Guruji and Sarat were in the in the office with me and talking to me and asking me questions and then told me that they were gonna authorize me and I needed to go home and open a yoga school and start a traditional MISO program. And
3: I was thinking to myself, I'm not ready for that yet, buddies. I'm <laughs> just <laughs> not ready for that.
2: But it was in a way it was it was necessary and it was like an interesting catalyst to in my life because that was in February of oh nine. And then as soon as I got back to America. I took that responsibility seriously, and so I found this little space, and I started a Morning Meister program. I was looking for a bigger space. I wrote out a business plan, and I, you know, was trying mm-hmm. to get money. And um, the gentleman who rented my first space, my first real space in Winter Park, you know, looking back. He really gave me a chance because I was just this like 20 something yoga teacher saying, Oh, I'm going to open a yoga <laughs> studio. Will you like trust me to pay rent every month? Yeah. And he totally did. And actually, the day after I signed a lease for the space, I found out I was pregnant with Kaden. Oh, wow. Damn. And um, so I really birthed two things at the same time. And I remember being pregnant with my son in the morning meister classes my first year. I, mean, I don't know how it was for you guys, but. I would either sit there with no students all morning or yep. with maybe one or two, and I would just chant over and over and over again, if you build it, they will come like the
1: field of dreams. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it really worked. <laughs> one is worse than none. It, honestly, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like you're just sitting there with one or two, and it's like, uh there was nobody. I could just at least
4: practice. I could do my own practice. I could at least do my own practice.
2: This I is... mean, that's kind of where I am again, though, guys. I mean, most mornings yeah. right now, I mean, if I have five, I'm like, woohoo. Yeah, you know? I know. Um,
0: it's mm. A labor of love. It's not for the ones who want to be Weak famous. Heart, no, that's no. for sure. Mm-hmm.
4: Not at all. <laughs> no, stop. stop.
0: Um, it's it's so interesting because we we share that you know the building of the yoga school and and the pregnancy and the first year of you know doing yeah. all the things. Your boys and, are about the same age. Yeah, Jedi is I think one year younger.
4: Mm-hmm. And
0: also, Patabi Joyce must have passed away too, like fairly soon after you right signed then. the
2: lease as well. So he actually he actually yeah. passed away before I signed the lease. He passed away. with there literally I rented out. I can't even explain what it is. It was the back space of a building that was like an additional build on, but it was really kind of like a warehouse space. Yeah. It happened to have a little podunk shower in it, but it held seven people. And that was the first space I opened. And Guruji passed away the day after I opened that
4: space. Wow! wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: What about the experience? You're speaking to people who know you, uh, know your experience of being in the Mysore room in in India. But if you were to uh, to say to the public, what was it about being in that room that called to you, that said, yeah, this is my place now. I'm going to go back to India. I'm going to spend every dime <laughs> and make sure I get back in that room every year for three months, no matter what the cost.
2: I'm really grateful that you're asking this question because I... I want to very clearly answer it for you. Um, When I arrived in India, I had no idea what I was doing. And I honestly regretted it in the very beginning because I was jet lagged. It was so hot. It was like the hottest summer of like a hundred years. And my very first practice in the Shala, when Guruji came and did the opening prayer, I cried and I cried and I cried. Um, I felt his presence and I felt his energy and I felt like this is my teacher. I Mm. now, I have a teacher now. I really Mm -hmm. have a teacher now. And that first trip really specifically, I remember for me personally, Guruji was always an amazing human being to me. He -hmm. was always very appropriate with me. And I chose him not only as my teacher, but as a father figure I never had.
4: Right, And Mm -hmm. so
2: his presence to me alone was so magical. But I also want to speak of the energy of the Shala and the room and the community and the dedicated practitioners. Because back then, if you guys remember, it was still so small compared to mm-hmm. what it is today. I mean, I know it yeah. was bigger than it had been in the 80s and 90s and things, but- mm-hmm. um, 50
1: people, 40 people, not uncommon.
2: It was it was just such a small, beautiful, intimate environment. And it was all, it was all so like-minded in nature that we really, mm-hmm. really were so dedicated and devoted to our spiritual practices. And We all really, I I really feel like the people that were there in those Mm -hmm. years, nobody was running after an authorization ticket, you know, Mm -hmm. it was about being there and being a student and studying Mm -hmm. and being part of a community. And it was so magical to me, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no other word to use to describe that it was a magical experience and it was so supportive in nature. And I, you know, it was, I mean, yoga practice, the Ashtanga practice, I always feel like is, you know, washing Mm -hmm. you from the inside out anyway. Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, that's on steroids when you're in Mysore. It's just (laughs) such an an, intense and a powerful and wonderful and positive intense experience. And uh, I I was able to shed so much of who I wasn't every time that I went to India. Mm -hmm. That's what drew me back because I could go and I could leave all of my life behind, all of my struggles, Mm -hmm. all of my issues, my identity even. And I could go Mm -hmm. and I could just be a student and be nobody Mm-hmm. And work on myself, and have a teacher that was there, really watching me and guiding me. And Guruji was very, very strict with me as a student, and sometimes that would make me angry almost. But at the sure. same time, I so appreciated it because I knew that he knew I I had so much fire that he needed to work with me that way. You know, because yeah. I, I would I would sometimes watch and be like, Wait, why aren't you being like that with her in this pose or whatever? Yeah. And Later, I understood it was because he worked with every student individually, and it wasn't favoritism or this or that. It was that he understood what I needed from a teacher, yeah. and, um, and that was why it was so powerful, and that was why I spent every dollar and saved up everything to get back there and renounce, you know, renounced everything in my life to be able to do that because there was nothing more important to me than having that experience and really being able to grow because I do know that every trip I made to India... I grew by leaps and bounds, emotionally, <laughs> psychologically, physically, intellectually. And, uh, and there was nothing like it I'd ever experienced before in my life.
0: I love that, that you bring that up. I was thinking about that actually just today, that the gift of being able to leave everything in your life behind and have like no ties and go be nobody. Mm-hmm. And just be Mm -hmm. and like just to just to be, you know, and to realize that you're not your personality and you're not your abilities and you're not your house and you're not your culture and you're not, you know, your clothes and you're not like all these things that we, you know, cling to or like attach our identities to our personalities. But to actually have that opportunity to experientially really understand how we are nobody And it's such a gift because I don't know that that's as common. I mean, we can talk about it and we can like, because we've had this experience, but I don't think many people get this experience because you really do have to like leave your environment in a sense, because you can't have all of the things around you that are, that are familiar. You have to go to a space that's completely unfamiliar that you have no context for. And you have no context of who you are in that space. And then um, and then also, I mean, at the time we were going, we didn't have the cell phones and the computers and the Internet and the social media and the like all the things that keep reminding you of your personality and your people. And right. You had to like make an appointment to call your parents from like the phone booth, you know. And like, you'd call them maybe once a month because it yeah. was like such an annoying hassle. And then you talk to them for three minutes and like, you know, it wasn't, and
4: you'd, you you'd just a, were
0: like alone.
1: You'd get an STD and, and then you'd-
0: <laughs> STD, <laughs> the, the phone booth, the phone
1: booth. The phone booth was called an STD. Uh,
0: but mm. yeah, and, and it's, it. Mm. I think something happens. You know, I think like a meditation retreat, sometimes this this happens to people where they can really like, like unlayer and like take off all this stuff because again, you're just sitting there for like 10 hours a day or, you know, however long, just like focusing on your breath and there's no stimulus and you're not reading and you're Mm -hmm. not attached to your gadgets. And, you know, you're just like being like really being and realizing that there's nothing there in a sense, right? Like there's just a body, there's just breath, there's just thoughts, There's just awareness and, and it's, it's just a gift. And it's, I think that, that India kind of at one point in history, I don't know, maybe it still does. I'm not sure, but, but it gave us that, that ability to, I mean, there was nothing to do literally, literally you did your practice. And then there's really nothing to do. And like, to really just like, get good at doing nothing. You know, yes. I, I always joke with people. I'm like, I love doing nothing. I am busy all the time, but I like, I just crave do nothing <laughs> because I know how juicy and like great it feels to just be and do nothing. And unless you've been able to kind of take yourself out of the the habit, the pattern, the the process that we're all in, in our cultures, in our societies, you know, it's really hard to like do nothing.
2: I think that you're right about that. And I actually now again, to refer back to Joe Dispenza, because I just love him to death.
4: Yeah. um,
2: (laughs) You know, what he teaches us in our meditations is exactly that to be nobody, no thing, nowhere at no time. And that's exactly what Not maybe not India did for us, but because we came from where we came from to go to India, mm-hmm. um, we were able to so powerfully disconnect from life. And like you said, for us, I, I missed that time because there weren't cell phones and there wasn't. I think back then there was just MySpace even. I don't even think that Facebook existed yeah, yet. It's true. Um, yeah, and, uh, true. and, you know, the daily monsoon season yeah. outages and like, mm-hmm. you know, you really just had to. Because I, I will be honest, I, I struggled with the doing nothing thing. And I probably still do to some degree. So when I was in India, I was still trying to do everything. I mean, I was like teaching myself how to build websites. And I was like doing <laughs> dance classes. And I was like doing cooking classes. And I was trying to keep myself busy. But then I remember when I, I my, after I left my first trip, all I yearned to do was get back to India so that I could just really focus on, well, being present and doing nothing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you can't, it's hard for me to explain to students here, which I know that you feel the same way. It's like, because we have, we go back to our phones and we go back to our families and we go back to our jobs, mm-hmm. even the days that you're able to do your asana practice, it's almost still like you're running on a treadmill all yeah. day long. And like, it's, you got to rush to get in your practice and yeah. um And there is nothing more powerful than being able to fully disconnect from who you are and everything that makes you who you are to be able to say, this is me and this is this moment. And this is how I'm going to make changes to myself from the inside out, because now I'm disconnected completely from all the things that make me who I am. So now I can really question who I am and decide if I want to make changes to who I am. Mm -hmm. And I think that India for me has always been the most powerful place to do that. Now I will say I haven't been back since 2018 because my medical tragedies began. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, things are so different now, but I, I would like to think that even someone who's going for the very first time now could have some kind of semblance of an experience mm-hmm. because the act of separating from your life is so powerful no matter where you go, I think.
1: Yeah, mm. totally. That's, It's totally. really interesting. I'm, I'm kind of, st- I'm struck by, um, your, both of you and your experience. I think it's, um, it it reminds me that uh being a painter and coming out of out of art school it's a, it's a little bit different because that's what art school is they throw you into a cube a white cubicle and you have to sit in there until something happens <laughs> And so that's that was ten years of my life just sitting in there and like oh I'm having a thought I better you know do something and I better do something mm-hmm. and so we're trained to just sit and do nothing and then transmit. That's wonderful. And mm-hmm. so going to India was no different from being a graduate school. I would just go into my my room and I'd do little paintings of fruits. I'd make drawing. I'd make portraits of people. I'd work on paintings and and that that was. You know, I've been used to doing nothing. And it it infuriated me when I had roommates <clears throat> who wanted to be doing fucking dance classes and cooking classes and go to fucking Jaipur and go downtown and do fucking shit all the fucking time. I'm like, can't you just fucking do nothing, please? <laughs> You're driving me fucking crazy. Can you just fucking do nothing? I'm trying to paint. I just want to sit here and like read my Agatha Christie novel. I'm just like fucking can I just fucking do nothing? I I came all the way to India to do fucking nothing. <laughs>
3: It's good mm-hmm. we weren't roommates my first trip then.
4: Oh,
0: God, <laughs> I always feel like you can, you can tell like, um, you know, the energy of like people who are there for the first time versus people who have been there several times, because when you're there for the first time, you do want to do stuff. Like you do want to do all the classes and learn all the things and do the massage class and the, you know, astrological readings and the lunching and the, you know, <laughs> and then, the more times
2: people go, you just kind of like,
0: stop seeing them so much.
2: Yes, <laughs> <right>. Exactly. <laughs> Amen to that. Because I'll yeah. tell you my last, my, especially my last four trips. I mean, yeah. I, I was <laughs> never really having meals with people. I wasn't socializing. I was practice and back to my home, either with my son or
4: yeah. trying to meditate
3: yeah. and trying to, re- or taking really long walks. Yeah. Um, so I agree with you. like, the more times you go, the less you do. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but it's also different. I mean, you were there with your son too, as and I was there with my son. And I mean, when you are there with your kid, it's also a very different Mysore experience than yes. when you're there on your own. Because again, you still have like that context, of course, right? You have your child. So you're like, you know, not nobody, you're a mom. <laughs> and and so you can never really like get rid of that um, at that point. And then also what you do in your day is quite different too. Like when I was there on my own, I didn't really hang out at the pool. I had no interest. But when you're there with a small child,
2: you
1: go like, to the pool what are we going to
0: do? We're going to the pool. <laughs> that, me,
1: that, that would drive me crazy. You know, it still drives me crazy.
0: That's what you got to do. You got to keep, keep your kids cool, busy. keep them entertained. Yeah yeah get that energy out and I mean we spent a lot of time kind of hanging out and you know you have lunch with people who have kids so the kids can like drive each Hang other out. crazy and not exactly. drive you crazy yeah. <laughs> so yeah it becomes a very different experience Mysore with children it's um it's also a beautiful experience in some ways too because for me I was always so grateful to have the house yeah we could get some help in the mornings or and then and then just have time with with your child to like, hang out and be together and not have to,
2: you know, rush, rush, rush to the next thing, the next place. Yeah, exactly.
0: Be working all day. And like, you know,
2: but I will say I, my first trip to to India with Caden, he was a little over a year and I was Mm -hmm. crazy to bring him at that age. I literally felt like that entire trip, I was trying to keep him from dying. Yes,
0: 100%. Falling in a
3: ditch or being hit by a cow or by a rickshaw or, like, whatever. It was, like, a very intense experience. But yes. then the next year I brought him, it was definitely more mellow. He was still
2: really yeah. young, but way more mellow. And yeah. my last trip to India, I actually got to go alone. And like you nice. say, yeah. I'm so grateful for the time that I got to spend with Caden in India and have, have that experience. But I was really, really, really <laughs> grateful
3: for that month in 2018. Yeah. Um
2: <laughs> and i and i didn't i didn't really go to meals with anybody i spent a lot like I, i'm very good friends with rocky and so i was yeah. you know i'd go see tina or rocky or people that i knew right. who, was, who lived in india and i'd spend a lot of time on my own walking and, and mm-hmm. it just really really cherished the quiet time like you mm-hmm. said like yeah. that quiet time for me has become so precious but it didn't used to be as precious as it is and i think that unless you get that experience of india it's hard for you to understand what a, what a beautiful experience it can be, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I feel like there's something really precious, you know, even if you didn't go to Mysore, but just going to India to the country and experiencing the culture that yoga is birthed out of the people, the, you know, paradox, the union of opposites, it's all there like everything in India is yoga like it just is infused with with um beauty and also like sorrow at the same time and it's just like I don't know to be able to hold those two opposites and just see like oh like it's perfection and it's not this or this, it's both at the same time. It exactly. gives you that experience and that's the yoga, right? It's like so beautiful.
2: I'm yeah. glad you mentioned that because I always felt that way, right? So mm-hmm. when I would come back to America, like I'm sure you felt this way. You love going to India and then right before you're about to come home, you can't wait to come home and have, you know, the things that you have at home that you don't <laughs> yeah. have in India
4: clean and food. every
2: time clean food, <laughs> you know, the occasional toilet paper, things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and um, but every time i would come back every single time after a month i was just yearning to get back to india because of that very thing that you just mentioned harmony mm-hmm. that 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 dichotomy of existence of life and how it was so perfectly imperfect yeah. but it was so perfect
1: yeah <laughs> it's perfectly so, imperfect it's so imperfect
0: yeah <laughs> yes. i know i know it's yes. hard it's hard to dis- you can't describe it you have to experience it it's like a taste mm. or a smell or You know, something that's like a a primary sense.
1: You know what I would recommend to anyone who is a young mom in India? In India?
0: Living in India?
1: Go to the circus and lose your child. Don't
0: do that. Oh, my
1: God. Best thing you could ever do for yourself if you truly want to experience impermanence.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. Go to the circus and lose your child.
0: Oh my god! That was that was our last trip to India. Uh, We lost Jedi at Cirque du Soleil in Delhi. Oh
3: my gosh!
4: That was the
0: most terrifying moment of my life to this day. Oh, he still never experienced terror. He
1: still won't confess. No,
0: he did. He went back and he he was sitting in the wrong seat. He he told me he
1: lost. Our seats. He was. He wasn't doing that because I. That's not true. Because I looked in every fucking seat. I know
0: everyone looked for him. They had. I looked the in entire every security team. There in, was. There wow. was
1: like a hundred. There was not a lot of seats in there. I looked in every single one. He was not sitting. No. I don't
0: know. We don't. He nobody a, knows what happened he to him. A, he is but a, they found him after like fifteen minutes. And okay, it was
1: no, How long did you? Twenty wait... minutes. It was the
0: entire intermission.
1: Oh, that's true. It was. It was only... about twenty
0: minutes, but it felt like.
1: Hours
0: and days, yeah. And I was like, like literally, I have never had a panic attack like this. But I was like, I I was using all of my yoga tools and still like white as a sheet, thinking my life is over. Oh my god! Like all the worst thoughts go through your head. Panic attack, like like hyperventilating. I'm like, okay, you just got to, you just got to breathe. You got to, you can't be hyperventilating right now.
1: (laughs) So we, he suddenly appears. They find him. That we I they had given me a a guard with a comms and we we're walking around. They everywhere, sent out with the a photo
0: to everyone in the place on their
1: phones. Okay, okay. And
2: so
3: and it's harmony, full
0: of Indian people, and he's like this little white kid with blonde hair yeah. and blue eyes, and I'm like,
3: so delicious. how hard is it to find him?
1: <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you know a child like that is delicious. You're not gonna like, like give oh that up. And so we find him, and then he like harmony. Like I, I think she was emotional. Of course. Understood. And it shook him to his core how emotional his mother was that he curled up in my lap and sobbed throughout the so whole bad. second half so terrible. and then just fell asleep. I think in my he was arms. also
0: scared. Cause I think he got lost somehow. I'm and
2: sure he
1: was scared. Nobody yeah. knows. He was trying to get on stage. Get the stage.
0: <laughs> we don't know, but that was, a, that was a few years back. <laughs> we haven't been uh, back since. <laughs>
1: whenever we bring it up in public, he goes crazy. He gets so upset.
0: I get upset. I don't like talking about it. He doesn't I, go, like talking I can go it. right back there.
1: <clears throat> so but, tell
0: us. Yeah.
1: I, oh. I was going to, I'm going to do it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So when last we segued, you were in Thailand meeting Harmony.
0: And she had learned some yoga. And in Florida.
1: what I want to, what I want to know is I want to meet Krista in high school. I want to mm. know what you're wearing. I want to know what your hairstyle <laughs> was. I want to know what music you were listening to and how, and like the choices that you made to go from there to get to college where you started doing yoga. Do we want to back
2: up to before my dad passed away? So you have yeah, a better let's understanding. Do that. Oh, okay. sure. I didn't know let's that you Let's go dad... right back to your okay. childhood. Okay. How, how let's it all that. began. So, um, I'm, I'm one of three daughters. I'm the youngest. And, uh, my mom, as I said, she was really sick most of her life. So she was constantly sick when I was a kid. And my dad, uh, was a really brilliant civil engineer. He actually helped pioneer solar energy. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, I loved my dad so much. I was probably daddy's little girl growing up. And when I was eight years old, um, when I was younger than eight, I remember visiting my dad in the hospital every, every now and then he went a couple times to the hospital and I didn't understand why he was at the hospital. I just hoped he would get better and get home. And, um, when I was eight, my dad took his life and, uh, Oh, that get, kind of hospital. Yes. That kind of hospital. But I was oh. like six and seven. I didn't, I didn't know, no. you know, um, but that kind of hospital. And, uh, so yeah, so when I was eight, my dad passed away and my mom, her mother and fa- her dad died before I was born. Her mother died when I was six. Her brother was killed by a drunk driver when she was 14. That was her family. Wow. So my, my dad was all she had. And my dad's parents lived in Alabama and I had two uncles on my dad's side, but they lived out of state. And so we had no family. And when my dad passed away, uh we were born into the baptist church a southern baptist so my dad mm-hmm. used to take me to church my mom often didn't take us but my dad would go and uh they would not bury my father in the church and uh right. the the bullying and um ostracizing of us as children was horrific it was so bad in fact my mom moved us from um where we lived in Columbia, South Carolina, my dad built this house. Actually, it was solar powered. The 1980s, wow. we had a solar powered wow. house. Um, we moved there from there to Lexington, no, from there to Irmo, and then Irmo to, to Lexington because we got bullied so bad in the two different school districts, and yeah. it was parents telling their kids not to play with these diseased kids, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so that was like the first part of my childhood. And I will say, I actually had a bad relationship with food. When he died, after he died, mm-hmm. I began. You know, I was so isolated and all of me and my sisters were grieving in our own ways. My mom was grieving in her way. And um, I took to food as sort of a self-soothing mechanism, but I was also really, really into school. So between diving into studies and soothing on food, I was kind of a chunky kid. And uh, fast forward a couple years, we're figuring things out. Life was hard. My mom had been a stay-at-home mom. And, um, she pretty quickly Bruce blew through whatever life insurance existed for my dad. And she was trying her hat at different jobs and, you know, talk about poverty. I mean, I really pretty much grew up in it and we constantly, we would either get evicted from home. She lost the home we lived in. She had to foreclose on it. She filed chapter seven or whatever. And, uh, then it was just a series of constant moves from place to place, to place, to place. I mean, I remember there was a period of time when we couldn't afford electricity um, in the condo we were staying at. And so I had to go live with my mom's friend for like five months. But during all of that time, I was going through puberty and mm-hmm. starting to thin out a little bit because I was growing up. And um, as a teenager in high school, I um, I was just a black sheep. I mean, I can't put it any other way. Uh, it, was, it was hard to go to school. It was hard to be the person I was, um, but I always felt different. I always felt like there was more out there for me To me, I grew up in a small town in South Carolina that was just very, very conservative.
4: Mm. And
2: um, I didn't know how or when or where, but I knew I wanted to get out of South Carolina when I grew up. Mm. And um, I, I remembered going to school. It was actually middle school when I was in a gym class. And this lady came in and started doing step aerobics with us and it was the very first time in my life that i enjoyed movement cuz i actually was not a person as a kid that like liked to exercise or go outside and play or ride my bike and things like that and i really really enjoyed step aerobics and so she kind of introduced me into this world of health and exercise and like mm-hmm. Healthy nutrition. My mom, my mom raised us on Yoo-Hoo's and Cokes and and like TV dinners and stuff. I'm not kidding. Right. Right? Like knew yep. nothing about nutrition.
1: Nothing. Us too.
2: <laughs> and um mm. and 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 she didn't work out. She didn't you know do anything healthy. So it was really eye opening for me, and that kind of started this sort of health journey. But it did turn toxic. I um I went through an experience when I was in a te- as a teenager that was very traumatizing for me, and. Um, I began subconsciously turning to exercise because I felt like I didn't have control of my life. My, my oldest sister had had two kids already was living with my mom and I, you wow. know, my mom wasn't very stable and I was working to clean offices and do all kinds of other stuff to help provide for our family. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like I had no control of my life. And when I found through exercise, I could sort of control my life a little bit. It turned into an eating disorder. Um, mm-hmm. so during high school, I became anorexic unintentionally. Um, <laughs> And that really kind of defined probably my 13, 14, 15, 16, mm-hmm. 17, 18. Um, but I I did get help through that. My mom got me help after a couple of years. It had gotten pretty bad um, to the mm-hmm. point where I was exercising for hours a day and um, counting every calorie, including my gum. I mean, it was really, really. And I would, you know, I hope people mm-hmm. out there who listen and understand or hear the word eating disorders, it's not a complex of, you're too fat or you're too skinny. It's really and truly a way to control when you've got stuff in your life you can't control. And over time, it turns into a sort of body dysmorphia because when you look in the mirror, you don't see what's really there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's very difficult to explain, but I will say that the underlying premise under any eating disorder truly is a need to try to have some control when you feel like nothing is in your control.
4: Yeah. And
2: um, I, with my mom's help though, I was able to get help and kind of, it was more of a masking of it. Like I gained, I gained enough weight to make everybody around me kind of happy. Uh, but I don't, I can't tell you that I was better. I was still trying to compartmentalize or control my life. Very focused on my studies, not focused on boys, um, really took my, my responsibilities with my family seriously. So I worked a lot in high school and, um, and I worked really, really hard to get scholarships to get the hell out of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, did, I succeeded in doing that. So I got, um, I got accepted to all the schools that I applied to, but Rollins College, which is in Winter Park, Florida, um, they gave me a presidential scholarship with a laptop computer, and I got all kinds of additional scholarship aid. And I also had applied for all these individual scholarships in South Carolina. So my first, Rollins at that time, I think was $33,000 a year, and I walked out with $20,000 in student loans based on all the scholarships that I had. But the funny thing is that if I had stayed in South Carolina, I would have been paid to stay there and go to school because they had this South Carolina Bright Futures. Yeah. So I got that automatically. So I would have literally made like $5,000 a semester just to stay in South Carolina. But I wanted out so badly that I was right. like, I
3: will take on whatever debt I need to get out of here.
2: Um, and so in high school, I was a nerd. I was a really skinny nerd. Um <laughs> I was really focused on helping raise my nephews, and I was really, really focused on trying to make good enough grades to get into a school somewhere out of state. Mm-hmm. And um, when I succeeded and I got accepted to Rollins, um, I came down here. And uh, at that point, I had moved past my eating disorder actually pretty well, and I gained that freshman 20. I started partying, <laughs> I had a good time with people, And uh, but I was always still... Trying to work out because I, I knew I didn't understand intellectually enough of what that endorphin rush is or how that mm. helps me. But I knew that when I did work out in any capacity, I felt better. I mm. knew that my anxiety was better. So mm-hmm. I always did reach to, you know, an aerobics class. Like I said, I still, I mean, I don't do step aerobics anymore. I haven't done it in many years, <laughs> but I still fondly think of it because I loved doing step aerobics. I just really, really loved it. And
1: when you I did was that, didn't you harm you did faith aerobics?
3: Pray, praise aerobics.
2: Praise
1: aerobics.
3: <laughs> to the video, to the VHS. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Good. I mean, it's I like... thought it
3: was the best thing ever. I really, really did.
2: But I remember vividly going, I had gotten a. s I'd gotten a scholarship to go abroad to Greece, my junior year in college. And um really, really into weight training and exercising and cardio and stuff. And I went and spent a semester abroad and it was such an incredible life-changing experience for me. It was my first time out of the country. And I, I, I really grew this hunger for travel that has been insatiable ever since. Mm -hmm. And when I came back to America as, I don't even, I wasn't even 20. I don't even remember how old I was, but I was so changed. And I felt like I came back to a world that was static. Like everybody looked the same, everybody acted the same, Mm -hmm. but I was such a different person And it really, it really shook me a lot. It really displaced me even more. And I was already sort of an outsider my whole life. So I'm like, what do I do now? Mm. And um, right after that, I I will never forget, I saw an advert at the gym that I was working at out. Uh, I tried one Hatha class maybe a year before that. And I, I, I thought to myself, I don't like yoga because I didn't enjoy this Hatha class I took. But this class, it said power yoga. It said, you're going to sweat, bring a towel, it's fast movements, and it's a good workout. And I was like, oh, I want to try that kind of yoga. Yeah. And okay, sure. lo and behold, it was a modified Ashtanga primary series practice. I think we ended around John C or Marichi A. And this what? woman, Karen Brenneman, um, she had actually just come back from her teacher training in Thailand with Paul.
4: Mm-hmm. I, wow.
2: think that, I can't remember her sequence of events, but I know that she had done her teacher training with Paul. And I think she had been to India once or was going to India for the first time. I don't remember. But she was teaching this leg class twice a week at the gym. And I started that summer taking summer school because the overachiever that I was, I wanted to graduate with two majors and a minor in four years, which I did. And (laughs) You and I are so similar.
1: (laughs) What were your majors? What were your majors in a minor?
2: I majored in anthropology and classical studies and minored in archaeology. Oh, my wow. gosh. Yeah. And I was fascinated <laughs> with ancient cultures. I really was specifically yeah. focused on trade relations between ancient cultures, but we'll save that for another story. So anyway, I get back and I'm starting summer school so I can do all the things and finish and graduate in time with all my degrees. And uh, it, it conflicted with these classes. And I was like so like distraught by it. And Karen told me, "Okay, well, you got to go study with this guy Ronaldo at Winter Park Yoga," and that was kind of the beginning of that. So, to go back to your initial question, what was I like in high school? I was I was a nerd. I um, I didn't have many friends.
1: Um, I was the youngest sister, I'm and I was featuring Zendaya in
4: Zendaya in
1: Zendaya in, in, Zendaya. It's Zendaya. Oh I, I a, a teenager, a teenage girl taught Correct. me that. Corrected recently. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Piss me off to be corrected, but I stand corrected. Zendaya in uh, in Spider Man is what I'm picturing.
2: Uh, honestly, yeah, I mean that's kind of what I was yeah. actually, and I really I did kind of have a hardship on my shoulder. You know, I um, I've been bullied so much in my life, and I was the youngest of of the three sisters, and so I was of course like the uncool sister, and. um yeah. I definitely, yeah, that was kind of my vibe, but I wasn't mm-hmm. as pretty as she was, as she is. Oh, I beg oh. to differ. <laughs> street, I beg but...
1: to differ, madam.
2: Um,
4: but I really me.
2: poured myself into school. I mean, it was my, it was my 100% focus and my passion. And uh, it was a place, it was almost like with, with studies, I could disappear. I could really yeah. disappear into a world of make-believe. And that's one reason I think I loved history and anthropology and right. classical studies so much because I loved, I was so intrigued by Uh, the, the, the myths and legends of ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And um, I I literally went through AP five Latin in high school. I mean, that was Mm -hmm. that much of a geek. I went to the national Latin convention twice.
4: That was (laughs) my (laughs) favorite
1: class in high school was Latin. I took Latin one and two. I didn't do what you're talking about, but like, I loved it. I loves. loved it
0: too. Yeah. I took Latin also, but only one semester.
2: <laughs> I was so I actually I was exposed to it in middle school. I remember I'll never forget oh, that's uh, like my fifth grade year, they gave us like exploratory French or Latin. You could choose, and I chose Latin because I knew about Roman mythology and stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And Magistra reed I'll never forget that I love this woman to death. She's still alive, by the way. Um, she was so cool with exploratory Latin because she really brought out like the culture yeah uh, same thing like that it's kind of what I remember initially about India when I first got to India. It was like I was so drawn in by the culture of India yeah. and I love the culture of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and I love learning about all the different gods and the creation stories, and that's really what eventually obviously led me to my major in college because at a young age, I already was interested. I was like, so how did how is it that this religion has a very similar creation story to this religion, and how did that mm. come to pass? Mm-hmm. And so that was really what my 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 thesis in college was on. Well, it was on an ancient shipwreck off the coast of Balbaroon, but the point of that <laughs> thesis was that I wanted to, um, I really wanted to get down to the bottom of how did trade relations inter interweave and help create and trans, transmit religious belief systems. Um, so that was Amazing. really my passion.
1: Fantastic! Yeah, that's I awesome. was a big dork. So, you went from from studying mm-hmm. anthropology to being a massage therapist. There's a transition there. And as a massage therapist, you ended up in Thailand. So, give us that. To give us that yeah, shift. Sure.
2: No, actually, um, mm. so I was in. Let me back up. So I was in college working on my my. Courses, I found yoga after I came back from my semester in Greece, which was my junior year. Mm -hmm. And I did yoga my junior and senior year. And I remember my, actually, my advisor for my senior thesis, she literally had told me at one point, you got to stop this yoga stuff. You need to focus your priorities. (laughs) and 100%. it really pissed Good me advice. off.
4: Oh.
2: Um, but I was, I was also working on, a, so I was also doing a research assistantship. My last two years in college, I was doing on an, an ancient bathhouses in Rome. It was actually pretty boring,
1: Amazing. Oh.
2: I was doing oh. that. And Love then I also had to, I had
3: down.
2: to, I had to help um, another, another professor was working on her PhD thesis. And so I was doing all of the that was doing some backend work for her. Let's just put it that way. It's mm-hmm. kind of boring to explain, but doing all of that. So my teacher at the time, my my advisor, you know, she was like, "You really need to focus on all this stuff." So fast forward though, I graduated from college, and um, I was supposed to go to Texas A and i I'd gotten accepted to Texas A uh, and M for, for your masters for my PhD. They actually had a PhD wow. program in not archaeology.
1: Love it. Yeah, <laughs> sucks. By the way, anybody out there from <laughs> Texas A A&M, AM fucking sucks. You guys can go. Fu- Excuse me. I'm I. My family's in Austin. Never mind. Good. Move on.
2: So I got <laughs> accepted, but I did, as I said earlier, I deferred enrollment because my mom was really, really sick. And um, yeah. I started, I, I, I had gotten a, certi- a certification to teach bat Pilates while I was in college. Mm. Uh, I literally remember Ronaldo once told me before he moved away, that first teacher I had for Mysore, he said, one day you're going to have to teach this practice to deepen your practice. And I told him, oh, hell no. <laughs> no. I'll: teach, I'll teach Pilates all day, I'll teach whatever, but I will never teach yoga because it's mine.
4: And oh. it's mine. And yeah, I really I felt that gonna, way. Yeah. Yeah. I really
2: felt that way for a long time. But once he moved away, I had my Pilates certification. I was still in my, my last year of college. And when Karen Brenneman moved away, She asked me to take over some of her yoga classes, Mm -hmm. and everybody was fine with my Pilates certification and my experience with yoga. And so I started Mm -hmm. teaching yoga classes. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of all of that, I started taking courses on massage therapy. Mm -hmm. And then I graduated and then I deferred my enrollment, went to South Carolina to be with my mom while she had open heart surgery. Then I came back. I'm trying to remember the sequence of events now, but I came back and I finished a course in my massage therapy training. And then when i went to thailand i did paul's teacher training and then i did a uh like a thai,
4: thai massage,
2: massage? training yeah. after i finished that and then i came back to the us and i was doing my massage here and i was doing yoga classes here and then and then i went i went to india my first trip i was teaching i'm sorry i wasn't teaching i was doing massage with traditional mm. massage thai massage and then i did kumar's I massage, that as well. And then then I incorporated that as well. But I'll be honest with you, so many students, and I mean, it got to the point, because I rented a house for a year, I mean, not for a year, for several years, I rented a house for several years, to the point where I remember when I came back when I was pregnant with Caden, it was the first year I didn't do massage in India. And I had, literally, students would knock on my door, telling me, I just got to India
3: and I wanted to book a massage with you. Oh my gosh.
1: 100%. Amazing. I was, I was paying for my lunch money by doing, uh, Kumar's Ayurvedic massage. And so I'd, I'd make a hundred rupees a day and I'd use that to buy my meals. Cause I was so stone broke and the yeah. and cleaner had stolen my last 50 bucks. So I, needed, <laughs> I needed the that money, you know? <laughs>
0: Well, I just think your life is so colorful and so incredible and we could get into all kinds of things, but I think we should save our, our motherhood and Ashtanga yoga conversation for another podcast. I would love that. Yeah, I would love that. we'll do, we'll definitely do in the future because I know you have a lot to share of practicing through pregnancy, pre-pregnancy, post-pregnancy, all of the things but i feel like this has just been so such You're a such beautiful a conversation for people get to get to know you. Christa. Yeah, and you've I been see. through so much mm. and you continue to practice through all of these adversities, especially the last few years and teaching and holding that space in Orlando for the community there is just such a such a blessing for them. You and would have hated
1: it and loved it. Seriously.
0: in Texas <laughs>
1: there's such a rivalry between the Longhorns and A&M. That's just,
0: so I I don't doubt it. And so just let's remind everyone since we started at the end and finished at the beginning, let's go back and just remind everyone back to the future.
1: Let's go back to the future. (laughs) What's happening in the future for you, Krista? How can people find you? Awesome question. So, and actually Mm -hmm.
2: thank you for asking that question because the yoga shala was my existence forever. And when I closed the studio last April, I decided when I was about August of last year is when I kind of was like, okay, I have a vision for what I'm doing next. And because so much of my work is not just yoga now, it is a lot with meditation. It's a lot with health and wellness, nutrition, um, Mm -hmm. life coaching, things like that. I wanted to better express what I am now as a changed person. So my my new website is called Olotita, O-L-O-T-I-T-A. It's ancient Greek for wholeness. Oh, and, um, beautiful. That um, ties
0: in your <laughs> passion.
2: <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I, I, it's, you can't find the Yoga Shala anymore if people knew me. Because people always knew the Yoga Shala Krista Shirley mm-hmm. kind of thing. And um, I still try to incorporate the Yoga Shala in our website. You know, it's like the Olo Yoga School, the Yoga Shala. Mm-hmm. But if you wanted to find me, my website is olotita.com. Uh, My YouTube channel, you just go to youtube.com slash Olotita. And I've been uh, working as best I can with everything that's going on in my life right now to post about every two weeks. But I've been currently just kind of moving through tutorial videos on the primary series, breaking down how to do modifications (laughs) for the postures. Mm -hmm. And then every couple of videos, I do like a practice along video that kind of brings you from sun A to whatever posture we stop at. And that's been a real passion project for me because as I said, I want to make sure that this is accessible to everyone. And especially after the tragedies I've experienced, like physically, I want people to see that anybody can do this practice. As Guruji would always say, you know, old
3: man, young person,
2: sick person can do ashtanga yoga, but only the lazy person cannot. And it's so true. And I really want people to see that. And so you can definitely, for no cost, get on my YouTube channel, and I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. this weekend at Woodley Park Yoga, oh, um, teaching an immersion. I'll be back there every month till through November. I'll be in St. Louis in November as well. Great and people. all of that's on my website. And if yeah. you're in that area of town, please you know, feel free to pop in, check me out. And I'm hoping to do a yoga retreat in Morocco in June of next year. And uh, hopefully that'll be on my website soon. But oh, I'm yeah. so grateful and honored for this opportunity to come onto your podcast today. And Y'all, anybody awesome. out there. If anybody has questions or relates in any way whatsoever to my experience or wants some advice, my contact is, is on my website. And I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Like anybody out there that might have questions or want to know how they can move forward with injuries, just send me an
4: email.
0: Okay. Perfect. And that will add all your links in the show notes. So, Beautiful. okay. It will translate. <laughs> People can find you yeah perfect thank you so so much for coming oh my gosh thank you, you both a it's, beautiful you guys opportunity are, to chat with you and I
2: just want to say to both of you that I think you're two amazing people and Aww. I was so delighted to see the two of you come together no I it, it's yeah I met both of you in very different points in my life yeah and I and I actually I don't think I ever ran into you in my story until after no. I met you Russell yeah
4: but I I,
2: I just you're two beautiful souls and I'm so happy to see you both together. So, Thank you. Thank
1: you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Big love to Caden. Yeah, definitely. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of finding harmony with me, your host, harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon.